All right, well, as Josh prepares to have the children, to have, well, the elder kids, Cornerstone, and he's gone. All right, so today we're going to stay in here. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 22. So you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the first book of the Bible. And not very far, but 22 chapters in, we're going to talk today about Abraham and of Isaac. It's probably an account that you know very well. But I was thinking about this account last week. In fact, as I was thinking about it, a couple of questions came to mind. And the first question that came to my mind was regarding the men because it's Father's Day. So I had this question in preparation for today. Men, how would you, rhetorical, don't shut out the answer, you start thinking about it, processing it in your mind. How would you describe the perfect Father's Day? When you start thinking about that, some might think in their mind, well, the perfect Father's Day for me would just be spending time, quality time with my family. Others may just love passionately baseball. And they say, well, the perfect Father's Day for me would be go with my family, my son, my daughter, whatever, to go to a baseball game. Other guys just like to go golfing with their buddies or whatever, but they just go play golf on a Sunday afternoon. And that might be their perfect Father's Day. I met a guy at the racetrack last week who told me that his perfect Father's Day was when him and his daughter went to Michigan Speedway for the NASCAR race. You know, I got thinking about what would be my perfect Father's Day. And I was thinking about it, and I thought, well, I had that a couple of years ago. I mean, every year seems to be great and outstanding, but I was directly asked a few years ago by my children, Dad, what would you like for Father's Day? So I told them, I would like to go back to Missouri. We lived in Missouri for almost five years, go back and visit the place we lived once, and, and not only go back and see how it's changed in the house we used to live in, but also at the same time, because we lived in Dexter, Missouri. It's in the Boot Hill. I don't know if you're familiar with, De with uh, Missouri, but it's in the southeastern portion of the state. And so at the same time, then, while we're visiting where we used to live, let's make sure we stop at Sykeston, where Lambert's is located, the home of the Thoreau Rolls, some great country cooking, and make sure we all have a great, wonderful time and dinner together. And we did that. Now, I have to go a little bit further and describe Lambert's to you. Because I'm encouraging you now. This is our commercial timeout, all right? If you've never been to Sykeston, Missouri, to go to Lambert's, it's worth the three-hour drive. Believe me, it's worth it. You go there, you have anything you want to have as far as home cooking. I like the fried chicken. The fried chicken is out of this world. It's better than my mama's. It's slap your mama good fried chicken. That's how good it is. I know, I'm always in trouble. But it's just that good. And then not only do they have that great fried chicken, they have fried potatoes and onions, another great combination. And then they have all kinds of different things to go along with it. And then they get these thrown rolls. Now, I'm talking about hot rolls. They're not better than my mom's, okay? But they're really close. And they're, 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 I know I'm trying to make up for it. I know. And, but they have, I mean, they're enormous hot rolls, you know, and made like this. And, and they literally throw them across the room. Now, I'm getting ready to have an example, all right? You ready, Owen? You ready? They take these hot rolls made fresh, and they throw them literally across the room. And you got to catch a good catch, Owen. Yeah. But that's how they do it. They throw them all the way across the room for you to catch. It's worth the drive. All right? So if you ever find yourself in southeast Missouri, stop at Sykeston right there on Interstate 55 and go to Lambert's. It'll be, you'll, you'll, You'll thank me later. You say, Kirk, man, you're so awesome. You're so good. You're right. That place was awesome. That place was good. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Maybe we'll have to do that some Sunday or some, some Saturday. Probably not Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So commercial timeout over. But yeah, so Father's Day is here. Father's Day is today. We recognize our fathers, and there's some here and not here this morning, but we want to take a moment to certainly honor our fathers today. And again, I was processing all this last week while I was at the racetrack, and my lovely wife Sheila accompanied me at the racetrack last week, and we, we were just so dirty, so dusty last week. It was just awesome to be just, you know, to have to come back at one o'clock in the morning and take a shower because you can't go to bed that filthy. It's just awesome. That's what dirt racing is about, right? Another wonderful experience that if you haven't done it yet, you need to try and you need to do. All right? But anyway, I'm processing this. And I'm thinking about Abraham. Because I know we're in Genesis throughout the summer and we're going through different texts. And I know we're in chapter 4 last week, but we make a giant leap this week to chapter 22. But I begin to think about Father's Day and Abraham and Genesis 22. And I'm thinking to myself, then wait a minute. If someone were to ask Abraham to describe the perfect Father's Day, would he dare respond in a way that say, it was the day I almost sacrificed my son? I mean, it seems ludicrous to even think he might have suggested that, maybe thought that. But we'll see today in that particular account of Abraham and of Isaac in an account we know well, the sacrifice that almost happened that maybe Abraham could recall that and think, that's the day, that's the day that I truly appreciate everything that God has given me. And, and it's the day I truly appreciate my son. And, and it's the day I finally had the test of all tests to prove to God, I am faithful. I could trust you. I will obey. Let's turn to Genesis 22 this morning and stand as we do so to be able to honor the reading of the word. We're in Genesis 22, as I mentioned a couple times now, and we're going to read not all the chapter, but pretty close to the entirety of the chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 19, which is a big chunk of Genesis 22. Verse 1, after these things, we'll explain what that means later. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, well, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? For Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Well, verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have to have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And then Abraham lived at Beersheba, father. But thank you, Lord, for the story we have read today in the account written in Genesis 22. An account, Lord, undoubtedly that we are, have heard before and are very familiar with. But Lord, as we process this account to begin to see how it can apply not just to fathers, but to all of us today, Lord, as parents and as children of God, we pray, Lord, that you'll direct us and allow our hearts to be receiving the message you've chosen for us today and see how this can apply then to our lives. Direct, Lord, and again, let's be thankful for how we can read a text written so many years ago to see how it's alive and still today, Lord applicable to our lives. So let's be thankful for what shall happen here today, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, as we've read that very popular account of Abraham and Isaac, and we really rushed through a lot between last week in Genesis chapter 4 and this week in Genesis 22. A lot of things happened between that, and we don't have any close amount of time to go back and recount different things. But let's just back up a little bit upon the birth, if you will, of Isaac. Because now Isaac is being introduced to us in chapter 22, if maybe for the first time, or just so much has already happened. So let us just refresh ourselves a little bit upon the birth of Isaac. And as you may know then, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham received word from God that he would have a son. And as he received word that he would have a son, there's a problem on the horizon. The problem is that his wife, known as Sarah, is barren. Sarah cannot have children. So with that information that they're going to have a son and waiting a while for it to happen, they, well, more Sarah then maybe concocted the plan because maybe she's embarrassed of her barrenness and maybe she's thinking I need to give a son to Abraham. And she tried to help God, if you will, by concocting the plan. The plan she devised and thought of then was to give my husband to her handmaid, to her servant. Now, that sounds really weird, I know. But in that particular time, it was a custom that a woman could give, if she was barren, she could give her handmaid to her husband so the conception of a child could occur. And further, with a child then, probably being born from the union of the servants, which was Hagar, with the husband, and we know that Abraham, but the 
the child from the union of the two would then be Sarah's and Abraham's. So if you know the story, you know indeed that it occurred. They were together, Hagar and Abraham. She conceived, the son was born, and his name was Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the son in which God had promised Abraham to receive. He was not the one to perform the nation. He was not the one to have the inheritance. So as a result then of taking matters in their own hands, seems like every time we do that, something results from that. In this situation, there's extreme jealousy and bitterness between Sarah, who is Abraham's wife, and of Hagar, who is Sarah's handmaid, but also if you will, a woman for Abraham. So after the birth of Ishmael, Sarah then despised Hagar tremendously. And not just despised Hagar, who was her handmaid and servant, but also even of the baby Ishmael, the young boy. She despised him too. So the plan didn't necessarily work. So again then, in Genesis chapter 18, God intervenes once more. He comes before Abraham and he speaks to Abraham and reminded Abraham that he would have a son with Sarah, his wife. Now, in that interchange of conversation, Sarah's nearby and heard that she would have a, still would have a son with Abraham, her husband, and she laughed at that mere thought. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 18, verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you, talking to Abraham, about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. It says, for information for us to know, verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women has ceased to be with her, with Sarah. So verse 12, then you see Sarah laughed for herself, saying that after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh? And why does she say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So note in verse 11, I mean, not only was Sarah barren, she was past the age of even having the ability to have a child. So she deemed what was happening when God says to Abraham, you're going to have a, a child with Sarah, your wife. She thinks that's completely impossible. It's an impossibility. So she laughs at the mere thought. But as God reminded, rightfully reminded both Abraham and Sarah in verse 14, that nothing is impossible with God. And so then, sure enough, you turn the pages and you come to Genesis 21, the chapter right before we started today, and you find out things worked out exactly as God said it would be. In Genesis 21, verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Nothing happens too quickly. We always have to wait upon God. God's timing is always perfect. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham circumcised Isaac on, on the eighth day. And it says, verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, which means then that Abraham was the first man ever, if you will, listen. Abraham was the first man ever 
to be having a walker and a stroller at the same time. That's going to be complicated. I mean, 100 years old, you got a walker and a stroller. So he was 100 years old, perfect timing for God, but then Sarah said in verse 6, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So there it is. We backed up just a little bit. We started in Genesis 22. We find out the text tells us in the very beginning after these things. So after these things is all the stuff we just talked about in Genesis 15, 18, 21. After all those things, then comes Genesis 22, where now Isaac has matured. But notice before we get there and go back to the account, that Isaac is the one. Isaac is the one, that, the son that God had in mind for Abraham. Now, as the text refers to in Genesis 22, go back to our slide for just a moment, verse 2, make emphasis on the fact that it says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. I mean, we know, because we refreshed ourselves of Genesis 15 and 18, and the story a little bit about Abraham and Sarah and of Hagar, we know there's another son. But it says in verse 20, 22, or 22, verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Which again means for emphasis that although Ishmael was formed and made into a son of Abraham, God had chosen Isaac for the birth of a nation. It was always to be Isaac. It was never to be Ishmael. We could say that Isaac, if you will, we could say that Isaac then was God's choice. Where Ishmael was more of man's choice. But Isaac is the one. Isaac is the one that God had in mind for Sarah and for Abraham. But as we kind of emphasize that for just a moment, oddly enough, we go back now and begin to process and dissect part of Genesis 22. It, it seems like the one is now going to be sacrificed. And then maybe there wouldn't be the birth of the nation. So as you turn to Genesis 22, again, after these things, we understand what that means. Now, because all this stuff has occurred, but then go to Genesis 22, the first seven verses begin to look at once more, begin to dissect and apply. But before we do that, a couple things sticks out in verses 1 through 7. Notice, first of all, it doesn't tell us Isaac's age. Remarkably, I've always seen in Scripture how you can go from a birth in Genesis 21, where Isaac is a mere baby and child, to Genesis 22, just one chapter can advance the story quickly. So years have passed between one chapter. And in chapter 22, we see that Isaac is maturing. And everybody wants to know then, as his son's being sacrificed in verses 1 through 7, well, how old is he? Well, let's take that time out for a moment. Let's chase that rabbit, if you will. How old is Isaac? We don't know. His age is not disclosed. So evidently, it is completely irrelevant, and for anything that we might add to it, it's completely subjective. But yet, scholars have this ongoing debate of how old Isaac is. Some would suggest that Isaac is at the age of maybe our teenagers who left with Josh a moment ago, about 13, 14, maybe 15. But others would argue that they're not even close to being a teenager. He's well into his 20s, maybe his 30s. I've even heard and read once 40. 
But whatever the age, the text reveals in verse 6, that Isaac is old enough and strong enough to evidently carry a load of wood to be able to adequately sacrifice an animal. Which then makes some suggest that he's at least in his mid to late teens. However, that contradicts, if we want to know this, it contradicts what others would say based upon Sarah's age and the Jewish tradition, which places Isaac in his mid-30s. But again, it's subjective and irrelevant. It then tells his age, so it's not an important detail of the account. But something else that seems to bother people about Genesis 22. Secondly, is notice in the account that Abraham, he didn't show any signs of struggling with the decision. I mean, now, here is a child that you've been promised for years. You even helped God for a while have a child. I mean, you went with Hagar, had a child. He wasn't the one. God came back and said, look, you're going to have a son, a son of your wife. So he waited for years to have this son. I mean, when God says you're going to sacrifice your son, we would think that, of all things, he might hesitate just a moment before he rushes in to take his son to Mount Moriah for the sacrifice. But we don't see any hesitancy at all upon Abraham. Notice in verse 3, he rose up early in the morning. Remarkable. It's just like exactly in Genesis 12, when he rose up early to go to wherever the Lord was going to lead him to as he got ready to leave in Genesis 12, his father and his mother. It's remarkable. He shows no hesitancy at all. He gets up early when God tells him to sacrifice your son. The Bible Knowledge Commentary adds, Abraham's response was staggering. He gave instant, unquestioning obedience. He even got an early start. However, the three-day journey was probably silent and difficult. The distance from Beersheba to Mount Moriah was about 50 miles. So, yeah, it's going to be probably silent. You're taking your son. You're going on a trip. The son, Isaac, does not know exactly what's going to occur and what's going to happen. He doesn't even know what God had told Abraham his father. But yet they're going together. Abraham is completely obedient, once again, to the call that God has for him in his life. So we we should admire that obedience by Abraham. The life of Abraham, as you think about Abraham, you probably think about faithfulness and obedience because he constantly displays that in his life. Now, there have been those instances in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 where he pretended to be Sarah's brother so it wouldn't hurt his life. But other than that, he always shows faithfulness and obedience throughout his life. But arguably, there's no better illustration of faithfulness and obedience of Abraham than Genesis 22. This is the best account to demonstrate his faithfulness and his obedience. But here's the thing we have to remember. He's being tested. But Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. Abraham is being tested on his faithfulness and his obedience. Now, it's revealed to the reader very early in the account, in fact, verse 1, that it's a test. Is that after these things, we explained that, the birth of Isaac. After the birth of Isaac, God tested Abraham and said to him, Here, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he gave him all the specific instructions to take Isaac to be the sacrifice. So, yes, God was going to test Abraham. However, Abraham never knew. He never had a hint. Listen, Abraham never had a hint that this was going to be a 
test. It's important to know about the story. He never had a hint, even though we know as a reader it's a test. Abraham never knew that. So I'm thinking about that, and I'm beginning to think in my mind, well, wait a minute. Okay, this is a large test. We're told it's a test early on, so we may process that differently than Abraham. But I'm still thinking, okay, Abraham doesn't know, so, but if Abraham had known, if somehow, some way, Abraham had known it was a test, would he have done anything differently? I mean, if Abraham had knew that this is a test given to him by God, would he still carry through with this command? Would he have still gotten up early? Would he still gathered the wood? Would he still made the three-day journey? Which then begins to have us to reflect upon the tests we get from God. You know, we're tested all the time. There's times we're tested, we don't even know it. Now, I mean, I hope we're never, never tested to the extent of Abraham, nor that of Job. But make no mistake, God does test us to refine and to mature our faith. Now, we have to insert here for just a moment, as James 1.13 reminds us, God does not tempt us, he will only test us. James 1.13 says, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God does not tempt us. That comes from our enemy. But God will surely test us. And as C.S. Lewis tells us, God's intention during that time of testing us is always that we emerge from the test victorious and spiritually stronger. So God will test us. 1 Peter 1.7 says that, these things have come. Trials, tests, tribulations will come so the proven genuineness of your faith, a greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So God is testing Abraham, and God tests us. But here's the point, which is in your notes. God does not test us for the purpose of making us fail, but rather for the purpose of seeing us succeed. He does not test us because he wants to see us fail. He wants to help us mature and refine our faith and for the purpose of seeing us succeed. And if you will, faith is like a muscle, and it must be exercised to help us grow stronger in our faith. So God will test us so that we have an opportunity to test our faith so we can become spiritually stronger. I mean, think of it this way. Perhaps God knows that somehow that his creatures, his people, are lazy sometimes. I mean, I was lazy a lot last week on vacation. You know, I typically get up like at 4 o'clock in the morning. You know what time I got up last week? Of course, I'm staying out late at 1 o'clock at the races. I get up at 7, 8 o'clock last week. That's My mom's cheering me for getting up at 7, 8 o'clock. Can you believe that? But, I mean, sometimes we just get lazy. And sometimes we just like to sleep in. So maybe God knows this how we are as people. And so maybe he knows it left upon us that we would be lazy and rest upon our laurels that rather than exercising our faith. So often as it is, like it is with Abraham, he'll begin to test us. Although we don't know we're being tested. But make no mistake, God is testing you. 
He may be testing you right now in a situation in your life and you don't even know it. But tests happen all the time. It's not a temptation that comes from the enemy, but a test to refine your faith. Tests happen all the time. I mean, tests, for example, can happen on April 15th, as it typically is tax day, when you have to file your taxes, and you think, oh, I'm going to cheat on my taxes. That's a test. You shouldn't cheat on your taxes. A test can occur when you go with your family. Maybe you're going for your family this afternoon to a movie or to a dinner or something, and maybe allows for, like it does at the racetrack, for a child under 10 to have a different price to get in. And you tell your child, just pretend to be 10. I know you're 11, but you look 10. Just pretend so I can get you in the, for free or a lesser price. That's another test. Tests happen all the time. In the movie Courageous, there's a young man who is actually the, like, the inventory control specialist. And he, he's working in that, in that environment, in that particular area of the, of the factory. And he's, he's not really the guy that's the, in charge of it all. But, but they actually offer him a promotion that if he will change the paperwork and make it look like some of the inventory disappeared, then they would give him a promotion that they thought he deserved. So this man has to go home and tell his wife that he, he loves his job. He says, but I'm, I'm supposed to change the paperwork. I'm supposed to cheat to get the promotion. He says, I don't know if I can do that or not. Well, there's a test. That's a test, I mean, of his honesty. He begins to process this, and he has a meeting with the supervisors that want to give him a promotion. The next day at 10 o'clock, he goes in, and so they bring him into the room, and they ask him, have you decided whether you'd be willing to change the paperwork and make it look like inventory disappeared in order to receive a promotion? And he tells them then that he would love to receive the promotion. He'd love to have this job. He loves the job he has now. He said, but I just cannot do that. So they give him a promotion because they were tested. But that's how it works with God. God will test us at times when we don't even know he's testing us. And in the text here we find in that Abraham is being tested. Abraham doesn't know it's a test. We know it. He doesn't know it. He is not aware it's a test. But notice, if you will, then that Abraham continues to go through with it as if it's not a test. We return to the account and, and notice that something begins to form. Something begins to happen, particularly in verse 2. It, it's repetitions. He says in verse 2, he says, take your son, your only son Isaac. Now that is just a couple of times in verse 2, but it's good repetition throughout the entire account in 16 verses. The commentary says the emphasis in verse 2 lies in the closeness between Abraham and Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love. He said the word son appears 11 times. In 16 verses, God is asking Abraham to demonstrate whether his love for his son exceeds his love for God. Let me say it the last time. Let me say it the last part one more time. God is asking Abraham to demonstrate whether his love, Abraham's love, is more for his son than it is for God. Do we sometimes place our children in a matter of priorities over God? 
We do. I mean, we should love our children because we don't have them for a long time in life. I mean, no saying is, enjoy the child while he's with you or she is with you because they're going to grow up, they're going to move out, and things are going to change. So we should always enjoy our children. Every moment that we get, enjoy your children. But Abraham, although he has Isaac, Ishmael's over there too, but he has Isaac, God is testing him to see if his love, if Abraham's love is more for Isaac than it is for God. Do you think we ever get those tests? Perhaps we do. But this is an ultimate test. Then of love and devotion, of trust and faithfulness, of priorities. The commentary again says, it is one thing to claim to trust God's word when waiting for something. It is quite another thing to trust and obey his word after it is received. This was a test of how much Abraham would obey God's word. Would he cling to the boy now that he had him? Or would he still obey and return him to the Lord? In other words, how far would Abraham go in obedience? Did he really believe that God would still keep his word and raise the seed, Isaac, a promise? We have to insert this. We have to emphasize this in the story because we're approaching the main point of the story. I mean, we mentioned earlier, we do not know Isaac's age. And it just must not be an important detail of the text. But observe then for a moment, as a father, it's Father's Day. Observe as a father, just, okay, it's Father's Day, but as a parent. As a parent, the very idea of sacrificing your son or your daughter is mind-boggling. We can't process that. And, and it's regardless of their age, whether they're 12, 14, 24, 48, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference their age. They're still your child. They're always going to be your child regardless of their age. So no matter Isaac's age, it's irrelevant. No matter his age, Abraham, as a father, as a parent, has a very difficult difficult decision to make. So put yourself for just a moment in Abraham's position. Ask yourself this. Would you obey the Lord? Would you follow through or ignore the calling of God and spare your child? Again, hope none of us are ever put to that test. Again, God does not test us for the purpose of failing, but for the purpose of helping us be successful, to see us succeed. But Abraham has a decision to make. Obey God or ignore God and disobey. That's very early in the account, but if we get into verse 3, then we see that Abraham obeys. After three days, he arrives. The location is finally visible of Abraham and Isaac, which makes then Isaac, think about Isaac now, very inquisitive about the sacrifice in verses 6 through 8. It's only going to be natural. Think about this. Maybe this is not the first time that Abraham and Isaac have went on the journey to sacrifice together. Maybe they've always taken an animal for the sacrifice. And now as they're going along their journey, a three-day journey, Isaac is full aware. I mean, he's carrying the wood. He's got it. There's going to be a sacrifice. He maybe had done it before, Dad. But now he sees something's different. What's different? There's no animal for the sacrifice. 
So he'd be very inquisitive. So in verses 6 through 8, he is indeed. Abraham took the wood, laid it on Isaac in verse 6. Isaac said to his father as he's carrying the wood and going along the journey, uh, Dad, where is the lamb for the burnt offering in verse 7? Notice Abraham's response in verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. What an incredible amount of trust and faithfulness Abraham has in God. And this was happening. We've got to stop and pause for a moment and ask ourselves, do we have as much faith and trust in God as Abraham? When we're in a crisis, do we believe truly that God will provide? I, I think about this being a, a crisis for Isaac and Abraham. There's, there's no animal for the sacrifice. That's got to be a crisis. But they believe that God will provide because God said he would. Abraham is saying he believes that God will provide the sacrifice. He believes, he trusts God. That's what Abraham. Abraham is fully trusting God. Now think about Isaac. We don't think about Isaac too much except for the fact that you know, he's, he's a boy carrying a wood. He's a boy that can be sacrificed. But think about Isaac. Do you think that maybe Isaac could possibly also be trusting God? I mean, Isaac, nobody knows the test. And Isaac is kind of wondering where's his animal for sacrifice. I don't think that Isaac has an inkling of an idea he could be the sacrifice. But do you think then that as dad tells son that, look, we're going to trust God, he'll provide the sacrifice, that maybe Isaac isn't also trusting God? Because sometimes, you know, sons imitate their fathers. So if a dad has faith, isn't it possible also that the son would have faith? Years ago, I found out that 93% of children who come to faith as a teenager did so because their father, their parents took them to church. That's a remarkable statistic. As for children who didn't attend church, it was like 16% whose parents didn't take them to church. So you think that Isaac possibly could be imitating his dad's faith? That dad's got faith, I gotta have faith too. Again, it's speculative maybe a little bit because Isaac and Abraham neither know one knows a, a test. But it, it, it tells us then that we also need to have just as amount of faith and trust in God. That we don't need to take matters in our own hands. Just simply trust God. When we're in a crisis, just simply trust Him. And Abraham illustrates that for us. Faithfulness and obedience. Look in verse 9, when they came then to the place that God told him, everything's about to happen now, right? Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood in order. Now, in verse 9, me, Isaac, has got to know. He bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel stopped him in verse 11. It says in verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy. I know you're not going to withhold anything from me. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He found a ram that was provided for the offering. This is really the climax of the story. There's a reader reading it for the first time, reads through it. He don't understand what's happened. He just knows the test. He reaches the climax. He doesn't know yet what's going to happen. And true enough, the Lord provides a sacrifice. 
but perhaps the, the part that captures in the untrained eye. Now familiar with the text is verse 11 where it says, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the, son to slay his, took the knife to slay his son. He stretched forth his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. That's what's happening. Years ago, I used an illustration with some teenagers. Because the teenagers weren't seen to process in it very well. So I took the teenagers in the, in the youth group I was in. It's been many, many years ago. I haven't done youth in a long time. But I took the teenagers and I set up a table. This is my makeshift table. Come here a minute, Levi. You're going to be my sacrifice. So I took a child, a teenage boy, from the group. And I laid him on the table. And I put the woods under him. I bound him up. I took my knife. And I walked over to the table where I have the young man bound, and I got ready to make the sacrifice, and then the kids finally understood what was happening. Sometimes we need a visual aid. You can get up now, Levi. You're not truly the sacrifice. The ram back in the thicket. We got one now. Sometimes we need a visual aid to help us understand what's happening in the account. There's a boy, a young lad, that's going to be sacrificed. Abraham is following through with it. Isaac is laying there. If I'm, I don't know what I'm thinking if I'm Isaac. Levi, what were you thinking? <laughs> and Levi knows what's happening. Isaac doesn't yet know. So this Isaac, at this moment, is Isaac trusting God? Is he believing, is dad going to really do this to me? We don't know. But we're concentrating on Abraham and his actions. He's obedient. He's carrying through with what the Lord has told him to do. He's trusting God. Abraham has completely now revealed his faith, trust, and obedience. His willingness to carry through is staggering for us, for the reader reading this. It's incomprehensible, unfathomable, but yet very reassuring to God. Because God sees it and he stops everything. He stops all the proceedings and allows the ram to be caught in the thicket to be the sacrifice. Just at the moment of execution, when it was about to begin, when the knife was about to enter the child, the angel of the Lord, who's always presumed to be the pre-incarnate Christ, calls Abraham, Abraham. One of the commentaries I was reading said there's certain irony in the fact that the pre-incarnate Christ is the one who calls to Abraham to save Isaac, knowing full well that no one, listen, no one would call to his father to save him when the time came for his sacrifice. That's an amazing irony in the story. That if it truly is Christ calling to stop Abraham, that he knew that no one would stop the proceedings years later when he made the sacrifice for all of us. CBS commentary says, It is now obvious that Abraham fears God. He reverences God as sovereign Lord from whom he will withhold nothing. It's the most horrible thought imaginable to Abraham is a possibility of offending God whom he loves and serves. If God asked for a sacrifice, he would give it without regard to his personal pain or loss rather than insulting him by refusing. It's completely, almost to us, absurd. But yet, it proves for us in account the thing that Abraham does is tremendous. Abraham ultimately demonstrates 
our final point, that no higher calling exists than to love God. In all of our lives, we must love our children. We must love our children almost more than anything. But the account shows us that we love our children, no higher calling exists, even as parents, than to love God first and foremost. Scripture commands us to love the Lord our God. Matthew 22, 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That command supersedes any. We must first love God. And it's a command to love our neighbor. I'm not telling you not to leave here today and love your children. I'm telling you, love your children, enjoy every moment of your child, child's life. Fully receive it. Live it up with them for as long as you possibly can. As many of you already know, they're going to go to college move out, get married, have their own life, and maybe not think you're as cool as you once were. I know, it's unfathomable. Because you're still cool. But your parents, but your, your teenagers won't think so. So enjoy every moment with them. But the account also shows us that the love we have for God supersedes any love we have. Abraham received the test, and he proved to be true to the test. Final comment says, a true worshiper of God holds nothing back from God, but obediently gives him what he asks, trusting that he'll provide. The key idea of the entire passage is summarized in the name Abraham gave to the place. The Lord will provide. The point is this. God will provide for you today. You may be going through a test at this particular moment in life. But all you got to do is trust Him. All you simply have to do is trust in God, be faithful, and obey. Abraham shows us that's what he did upon this day. So if Abraham was asked, what is the best Father's Day ever? I'm not sure he would answer this was his Father's Day that he might remember the most, or that it would be the best one, you know, the perfect Father's Day. But it is a day in which he truly proved to all people, maybe even completely to himself, to his son Isaac, to, to all of us, that the ultimate love is to love God first and foremost, but also enjoy your children as long as you have them. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message today and point that it makes and the truth it provides. But we just ask you to be with us today that as we consider this message upon Father's Day, Lord, that you'll allow us to process it in our minds and begin to see how it applies to our lives, Lord, that you've shown us here today. We pray, Lord, that you be each father again. We thank the Lord for the fathers and for all they provide for us, Lord. Just be with them this day, Lord, and have a wonderful day. They're here today, Lord, because they love God and not afraid to show it. So bless them this day, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.